Welcome to the Bill Kelly Podcast. I'm Bill Kelly. Today, did Donald Trump's primetime speech on border security go over well, or did it fall flat? General Motors rejected Unifor's proposal to keep the Oshawa plant open, and Facebook is reviewing comments threatening the Prime Minister on the Canadian Yellow Vests page. The Bill Kelly Podcast starts now. Today on the Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. Donald Trump addressed the nation yesterday uh, to do with his wall. I uh, used a primetime speech uh, to pitch his wall as a fix over the drugs and crime uh, problems, he says, in the States. And, uh, well, we'll we're going to review that in just a couple of seconds, but I want to play a little short clip of uh, what the president had to say last night. Democrats in Congress have refused to acknowledge the crisis. And they have refused to provide our brave border agents with the tools they desperately need to protect our families and our nation. The federal government remains shut down for one reason and one reason only, because Democrats will not fund border security. Uh, we'll talk about inaccuracy in a couple of seconds as uh, Laura Babcock joins us, of course, president of Power Group uh, with an analysis of what happened last night. Laura, thanks so much for the time. Good to have you with us today. My pleasure. I want to get into content about what Trump had to say last night. But before I do that, I'm always intrigued uh, because part of the, the, the work that you do, of course, with Power Group and, and many of your clients is, is to talk about presentation. It's not just the message. It's how you deliver that message. Uh, give me an assessment on, on how he performed last night, uh, body language, things of that nature. Very successfully. He managed to look presidential, and I know that's a term that gets thrown around a lot and the term that he mocked when he was running to become the Republican nominee, but he managed to pull it off, to sit behind the resolute desk, to make it something so serious, this wall, which has kind of been a, a fringe thing, more of a pivot to strength line that his advisors gave him back in the campaign when he would lose his audience in those big rallies. He managed to move it into the mainstream by using the power of the ultimate bully pulpit in the Oval Office. It's a place, it's a setting, it's a staging that is reserved for really serious things. And so by making the wall now more of a serious mainstream discussion and looking presidential, he was successful. His content, which we'll get to, might have been lacking, but what made Trump look even better was the really poor performance, if you want to talk body language over content, by both Chuck Schumer and Nancy Pelosi. I mean, they wanted to have a rebuttal afterwards. The networks gave it to them, which is pretty rare after an Oval Office. This is not a State of the Union. Uh, So they had this rare opportunity to fact-check Trump or to give their side of the story around this government shutdown and the wall. But they staged it terribly. They looked like the two kids from The Shining or, or that painting American <laughs> Gothic. It was terrible. Uh, and not only was it terrible, but they seemed laconic and lackluster. So compared to them, Trump looked good. And, and I, you know, the second that I saw them from a body language perspective, I thought, oh, no. When Nancy Pelosi is on her own, she's highly effective. We've seen her with Trump, uh, you know, sort of mano a mano in the Oval Office. She's really spectacular. Uh, that positioning, that framing, how tense they were, the way that they delivered it, it almost putting the audience to sleep, uh, all played into Trump's hands. So uh, thank goodness Cortez, uh, the young congresswoman, got you know several million people to see her rebuttal to Trump uh, via the Rachel Maddow show, and it was very passionate and very informative. But it was a big mistake by uh, Schumer and Pelosi to do it the way they did in terms of stagecraft. 
Well, yeah, I'll talk about those two for a second. I, I was shocked and, and quite frankly disappointed as soon as I saw the two shot of them before they even started talking that this is this is not it. I mean, it, it's not Tweedledee and Tweedledum. There was an opportunity really to, to slam what the president was saying, and instead they read pre-arranged scripts. They were monotone, they were dull, and that's totally contrary to both ways Schumer and Pelosi usually perform. Absolutely, and so... And even with that long shot in the hallway, I mean, it made them, I, I, again, I bring up that image of the, from The Shining, because that's exactly what it looked like. Why Why the distance? Why was that so creepy? Why, why wouldn't we have more of a, a tighter framing on them like they had with Trump? So, you know, was, I understand that it was a kind of a scramble to see whether the networks were even going to cover Trump, and they had to really push all day probably to get that response time and prime time. Uh, but it was a mistake. And so is it fatal? No. And as I mentioned, if you look at social media pickup, certainly uh, Cortez has gotten a, a ton of it. And she sort of represents more of a, an in-the-moment passionate response to the actual things that Trump said. But, you know, in the future, if Chuck and Nancy are going to do this kind of uh, one-two thing with Trump, they have to understand how to leverage, as you point out, their, their inherent strengths. And they didn't do it last night. Do you find, though, not notwithstanding the fact that he did look presidential sitting behind the desk, it'd be hard not to, but the teleprompter Trump is, is really rather monotone and boring? Oh, of course. Uh, but again, I, and I watched it several times, the only time that he got a little bit more interesting in terms of his tone and, and getting out of that kind of monotone delivery he does, when he actually started to get interesting was when, of course, he was talking about the, the, the horrible crimes that he was picking up and the de- graphic descriptions. When he said, you know, the word coyote, he took great relish in that. So when he was talking about stuff that he knows fires up uh, people who fear immigrants, he was getting into it. And so, again, by if you, if you had the regular Nancy Pelosi and Chuck Schumer, who are very good in the moment of riffing, we even remember Pelosi the other day saying, a dollar, a dollar for the wall, are you serious? You know, it's an immorality. Just fantastic on the spot during the scrum, uh, but when they had their performance after his, you know, it made him look that much more charismatic, which is hard to do when he's reading on the prompter. So, again, with these kind of things, Bill, you know, it's not just how you perform, it's how your opponents perform, and yeah. in this case, uh, they made him look good. Well, a pox on all their houses, because if anybody tuned in last night hoping to hear something new or a different twist on this, uh, n- nothing happened uh, from any of the three of them. It was the same old talking points that we've heard for the last few mo- months, really. Yeah, and so that's why I, I bring it back to, and there's even a Washington Post uh, comment piece this morning that says that Trump won the night, because uh, none of them did very well. Trump didn't say anything new. He didn't bring up the emergency measures that everyone feared he would that would have made the big news. And there's even reporting saying that he didn't even want to bother with the speech. But I think what's interesting to note is that it did take the headlines away from some of the other stuff going on in the Mueller probe that came out yesterday. And he did send out a fundraising letter after, apparently, saying, you know, you can become some sort of a border patriot by donating. So uh, he's good at grift, and maybe it was being used in part for that, Bill. But, you know, his content uh, last night was just what we've heard at rallies. The only difference is I think he's mainstreamed some of that very pernicious rhetoric. Uh, and that should be of concern for people. It's easy to say he lied a lot, which he did. But let's face it, if he was able to get some people to think that there really is a crisis at the border, which there isn't, other than the humanitarian one that his policy of family separation has started, uh, if he can get people convinced even a little bit, you know, he won, he won the message in war last night, which he had been losing the last week. 
if uh, if we were marking this, you know, you you got the speech in front of you, you got the red pencil out, Laura. I mean, the, there's X's and, and circles all over the place where he's basically, as you say, out and out lied. Uh, when it came, for instance, to the number of people and the illegal drugs that were coming in, which he says are coming across the border, uh, his own government departments say that's not the case, that they're handing, uh, most of them come, uh, the drugs, illegal stuff is going on in land ports, not coming across illegal crossings such as this. But that's not going to bother anybody that, that are already Trump fans. I mean, his base already know that they're going to believe everything that comes out of his mouth. I guess the ultimate question when it comes to something like this, uh, when you got a Republican president and two Democrats trying to rebut this, did any one of them move the yardsticks? Did they sway anybody's opinion last night? I think it's possible that Trump did. And uh, I say that because, as we all know, there's a famous line from one of Hitler's associates that said, if the lie is big enough and repeated often enough, it, it works. People buy it. So think about the lies that we've seen and how often they were being repeated yesterday by, by, by Pence. He did sort of every network, the VP coming up to this, by Sarah Sanders, by Kelly and Clark. Everybody was out there talking about numbers that are big lies. They're not even close. 4,000 when it's really 6, 3,000 when it's really 12. I mean, huge. They, they blew up these lies. And that's what concerns me about this bill. And I, I put out a little post yesterday from the other show about watch out for the big lies. Because if you just look at them and say they're ridiculous on their face and they're so easy to dispute, yeah, but why are they doing it? They're doing it because it works, because people hear those big numbers, and even though they're disputed and fact-checked, sometimes even in real time, like Wallace did on Fox with Sarah Sanders on Sunday, there's still the impression made of these thousands and thousands. And this idea that, you know, he brought up this thing with the opioid crisis, which is a real crisis, costs Americans a huge amount, billions and billions. And so by, by stopping this, you know, the border, they're going to stop this opioid cost to the country and it'll pay for the wall. Well, the fact is that the border is not where the opioid, where the drugs are coming in. They're coming in through ports of entry and, and the terrorists are coming in through airports. But the lines are so big that people are possibly susceptible to them, Bill. And I think that, you know, there's, there's a reason why we have to be very cautious, not just to say it's ridiculous, so therefore it's not going to work. In history, the ridiculous has worked. I got a, a tweet from David Frum, I'm sure you saw from just a couple of minutes ago, too, uh, where uh, David uh, responds, uh, says, uh, responding to a border emergency by urging the beginning of a planning for a 15-year-old civil engineering project is like saying, my house is burning, time to begin the process of calling for design proposals for a new fire station. Uh, that's logic, and and that makes all kinds of sense. And pragmatists are going to look at that and say he's absolutely right. But I don't see pragmatism as much of a factor in this debate. And that's the real challenge here. I mean, the if you and and I think it's important to note that what Trump does very well is the double down, the triple down, where most politicians would say this is a messaging morass. There's no way out of this. You know, we said it's this and it's that. We said this would pay for it and it hasn't. I mean, most politicians would say this completely stinks what a stupid thing i gotta i gotta change the channel not trump i mean he was repudiated with his caravan idea at the midterms a historic repudiation which would drive any other politician to say hey you know what this thing is not working i've got to change my rhetoric around immigration and the border but what do we see we see him using an oval office address and one person said it brilliantly you know in the past the oval office address was always used by presidents to calm a fearful nation. This is the first time it was used by a president to give fear to a calm nation about something that's not even real. And so the fact that he was willing to take that that risk, was willing to do that tactic, Bill, is deeply disconcerting. 
Now, of course, there's the possibilities of impeachment at some point. Of course, there's the Mueller investigation that at some point will come out with some things and a whole bunch of other legal challenges that this president is facing. But from a messaging perspective, the the options they keep taking of going bigger and bolder and the lives larger uh, and the tactics more extreme, I, I really think that, you know, we're not looking at this carefully if we're just looking at it logically. We have to look at it in terms of, what kind of stagecraft might, in fact, move a population in a dangerous direction? There's another element to this, too, that I know you've touched on in the past, Laura, and that's uh, and you just touched on the Mueller investigation a second ago, uh, and that's pushing stories around. And, and Trump and his team, whomever's calling the shots in this situation, because uh, I, I, we know the story that there was a period of time yesterday until where he probably said, I don't even want to do this. But given the fact that the other story that was supposed to probably be on the front page yesterday was the a leak from the Mueller group that essentially said Paul Manafort lied when it talked about you know his his dealings with Russians, uh, that probably could have and should have been front page news. It's pushed to the back right now because of what Trump did last night. Yeah, they're very good at this. I mean, the guy who is doing this uh, presumably is the guy that came over from Fox News that's running his comms now, his communications, and, and set up this Oval Office thing. I mean, they, they know how to use the bully pulpit. And what they say, again, might be ridiculous, but it's big, it's bold, it's repeated frequently. They understand social media. A lot of the same tactics that made Trump the president uh, are the same tactics that may make him the president again, or may in fact cause all kinds of other concerning policy decisions or, or actions over the next year and a half. So we have to look at them carefully and say, they're doing it because it works. They changed the channel. He's very, very good at that. And so yesterday, it wasn't just that there was something interesting about Manafort. It was that Manafort's lawyers actually messed up. And we found out that there, he was giving polling data from the Trump campaign directly to the Russians, which may, in fact, be the closest thing to smoking down on collusion that has even come up. But were we talking about that last night? No, we were all glued to see whether or not Trump was going to go unhinged about the wall. And Trump, you know, surprised and disappointed some people by actually looking like he was mainstreaming the world debate. And I think it's going to make it even harder for Democrats now to look as though they're the ones being reasonable in this whole government shutdown and, and debate about the wall funding. Well, i got about 30 seconds left. Let me ask you about that, because that, that's one of the subtexts of this whole thing, too, is, of course, the government shutdown. Uh, and he blames the Democrats. Uh, national polling last night indicated that 53% of Americans blame Trump for it. Uh, only about 32%, I believe, blame uh, the Democratic Party. Uh, does this embolden those Republicans that were walking back from Trump on this? Did they watch his performance last night and say, no, we're going to stick with this guy? I think it gave them a little bit of pause, yes, because there was a building momentum uh, that said, oh, hey, this, this shutdown is just too painful. Friday is a big day, though, because that's when this becomes the longest shutdown in history. And yes, by polling so far, the American public knows that Trump, this is his shutdown. Uh, so it'll, we'll see how much they can take of it by Friday when some people have had their sort of second or third week without a paycheck. I don't think Trump's out of the woods on this yet, but I do think that he gave some pause to some people that were probably looking at bailing on him on this issue. Laura Babcock, uh, president of Power Group. Always a pleasure, Laura. Thanks so much for this today. Thanks, Bill. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. I want to talk about what happened in Oshawa yesterday. Uh, after meeting with uh, General Motors, uh, Unifor representatives uh, were very, very disappointed with the way, the way say, they say uh, General Motors was dismissive of what they thought were some pretty good ideas to keep the Oshawa plant going. 
Uh, it's not going to keep going, apparently. And, uh, well, they stopped working. The workers, that is, did not uh, go on the line. Uh, obviously causing a stop in production. Joining us to talk about this whole scenario is Ian Lee of Sprott School of Business at Carleton University. Ian, thank you for the time. Good to have you with us today. Morning, Bill. In your heart of hearts, did you think it was going to be anything else except, no, we're not going to do this? Yeah, they did. There was, they were, there was not a snowball's chance in hell that uh, General Motors was going to reverse its decision. It was based on the their analysis of uh, their various plants uh, around the world. <clears throat> they have too many plants. They're producing. They have too much capacity. This particular plant has been running for several years at one third capacity. And knowing what I know about business, I used to work in business. I teach the strategy course for the last. 30 years, and any company that's running at one-third of uh, capacity is carrying an enormous amount of additional unnecessary overhead associated with the surplus capacity. So it was a question of time. It was only a question of time when they were going to rationalize and, and close it, and then it was a question of which plants. Moreover, that, that was the sort of the first reason, the most obvious reason, the red flag was it was running at one-third capacity. The second one is is that it's producing cars at that plant, and the 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 writing has been on the wall for this didn't happen yesterday morning or last week or last month. The trend in Canada and the United States is very very pronounced and has been for many years now, a shift to uh, SUVs and trucks, light trucks, and cars are declining in um, in popularity as a percentage. And they're just going down, down, down. For um, I can give you all kinds of reasons, but we won't get into that. We're not here to discuss that. But <clears throat> so General Motors had a a plant at one third capacity that was producing cars for which there is less and less demand. And General Motors is on the record, the CEO, as well as the Ford CEO, as well as the the Chrysler CEO, as saying Canada is the most expensive place in the world to produce cars. Now you add those three things or connect those three dots together. And it was just, it was just blindingly obvious that this plant was going to be chopped and, and be closed, and that's what's happened. And, and I know Unifor will, will you know, confront uh, General Motors, and I'm sure they did at the meeting yesterday, because they've heard that statistic, too, about the most expensive place to produce a car. And they, they, they obviously disagree with that, but, I mean, the numbers are there. Uh, they are. And, and, and these are the bottom lines for all three automakers. And uh, we, we had that discussion back in 2009 when the federal and provincial government had to yeah. bail out uh, all three yeah. automakers. Well, Ford didn't take the money at that time. But be, they said, look, it, we're doing this to try to maintain this auto industry. And as you've told us before, Ian, part of that deal was, okay, we're going to maintain our work here until 2019. Well, they were true to their word. They did follow through on that. You yeah. may not like what they've done, yeah. but we kind of I probably should have expected this at back even back in 2009. Exactly, exactly, and that was uh, that was my argument, and I know it sounds very harsh, and I, I did get criticized, as you can imagine, because, you know, I'm in the ivory tower, and I've got a guaranteed job, and I understand that, but that doesn't change the logic of what I'm saying, and the fact that, I, that, that that's my situation doesn't change the underlying circumstances, the structural forces facing this industry. I'm an analyst, you know, like a, a, a sports journalist analyzing, you know, the uh, why one team is going to the Super Bowl versus another. Uh, the, the the analyst doesn't change the strengths and weaknesses of the particular team, hockey team or football team. All they're doing is highlighting and doing the analysis. And and so my point being that, um, I mean, Jerry Diaz and the and Unifor, in a sense, are contradicting themselves all the time. They're saying on the one hand that they are really it's a phenomenal. I've seen them interviewed saying we can produce cars better than anywhere else in the world, and. Uh, 
and and there's there's nothing that can be um, the, you know that that's incontrovertible. They argue, and um, and then <laughs> they turn around and when they don't locate there, they accuse them of being greedy. Well, uh, and selfish. Well, if they are greedy and selfish, in other words, they're self-interested. They're going to they GM are going to locate their plants where it's most advantageous for General Motors. That is to say, where their cost structure is more advantageous, where the where the uh, productivity is more advantageous, and and on exactly on point. I just looked up some numbers just before we started talking. In the last thirty years, more plants, parts plants, and auto assembly plants have been opened in the southern United States than anywhere else, including Mexico. And so my point is, you know, you look at the track record. And this isn't just General Motors. This isn't just um, um, uh, Ford and Chrysler. Volvo is down there. Mercedes-Benz, Volkswagen, you know, uh, Nissan, uh, Honda, uh, Toyota. They're all locating down there for because the cost structure, not just wages, but land, taxes, everything else, is cheaper. So what I'm saying, what I'm arguing, is is that Jerry Diaz is not confronting these realities. And until they confront those realities, then this problem is not going to go away. That is to say, the industry is going to continue to downsize in Canada. Well, and, and there's got to be some pragmatism, I think, involved in this. And, and I listen, I received some heat, as, as I'm sure you did when we have these discussions. But I, I'm totally sympathetic to the 3,000 families that are going to be impacted by this. Exactly. And, and the greater community of Oshawa, obviously, because there's always going to be ripple effects, and we know that. Yes. And, it, and it's horrific that it's happening. But the reality here, I think we have to face here, Ian, is that, you know, and I had these discussions with Bud Hus- Buzz Hargrove, who is, you know, of course, the president of the uh, well, precursor of Uniform, yep. of course, the CAW, yep. that yep. The, the auto industry in Canada has been on life support for about 10 years now. Exactly. There are exactly. some that are, t- I mean, you know, I, I understand that, you know, Honda, as you mentioned, and Toyota and everything have plants here, but, they, but mind you, they're non-union. Uh, which yeah. seems to, you know, those those guys are, are not even included in this discussion. There are some that are doing pretty well, but the big three are not the big three anymore. That's right. That's right. In fact, and this is my, uh, and by the way, just I'm glad we brought this up because I get emails saying you just hate unions. I am unionized. I belong to two unions. Oh, no kidding. I'm unionized at Carleton University, and because I, I get small stipends to appear on CBC Radio, I, I'm unionized there in the CBC Journalists Union, or whatever they call the, uh, the, the Performers Union. Um, so I'm not anti-union. I'm just looking at the facts and saying, well, what's going on here? And I think that the... I, I'm not trying to say that the unions caused the problem. I'm not saying that. These, the big three have had competitiveness issues for the last 10, 15, 20 years, compared to the Japanese, compared to the Koreans, compared to South Koreans, compared to the Germans. My criticism of the unions is that they should have been more proactive. They should have been benchmarking the competitive uh, structure of their of other companies in the auto industry, just like the German auto unions do. And I figure if the German auto unions can do it, so can the Canadian auto unions. And that's benchmarking the wages at the other companies, benchmarking their productivity, and so forth. Because my argument is that the Canadian auto industry is not as competitive as some others, including the southern United States. So they can deny it. They can wave their arms and pound their chest. But then I ask the very simple question, why are so many plants over the last 30 years being opened across the southern United States? I went and looked at the top 10 states for car production. The most obvious, you know, is Michigan, of course, Indiana, and Ohio. Right after you take out those top three, the next seven are all in the southern United States. 
Thirty years ago, they never made a single car in the southern United States. Texas, Texas is the number four auto producer manufacturer now in the U.S. Uh, where did they come from? Well, they got there because they're more competitive. And, and so when he keeps going on about Mexico being the number one competitor of Canada with their, quote, cheap wages, he is wrong. Because Mexico is making the small cars. We're not, both the Americans and the Canadians, are not competitive in making the small cars. Where we want to be going is going after the SUVs and trucks, because that's where the market is going, number one. Number two, because they charge much higher prices, as every one of them listening to this program knows, an SUV or a truck costs an awful lot more than a four-cylinder Honda. And, and the point is, they, we can pay higher wages in those uh, higher-end uh, product lines because there's more more money coming in on a per-unit basis. So, if anything, I criticize Jerry Diaz. Why seven years ago, why wasn't he lobbying the, the big three and General Motors to build SUVs in Oshawa in, or trucks instead of cars? Nobody saw that coming. I shouldn't say nobody because you're right. Others have started to flourish as a result of this. But you know, I looked at at I, we weren't there obviously when Diaz was meeting with General Motors. Uh, yeah, right. but but we do right. know essentially that they came up with three different proposals here. One of them uh, they said was uh, to extend the life of the Chevy Impala and the Cadillac XTS. But your point's well taken, Ian. You can't keep building cars if nobody's going to buy them. Precisely. And you know the sales. Uh, just to put some big picture numbers on this, the the sales of cars are plummeting. I mean, I'm, I'm Exhibit A, and I'm just an ordinary Canadian. I have not bought a car in 25 years. Does that mean I don't have any vehicles? Of course not. All I bought is SUVs and crossovers, you know, because that's part of the SUV class. Yeah. And trucks are just going like gangbusters. They're over 60% of all sales in Canada states are now trucks and SUVs. Cars are 40% and dropping like a stone. So why are they going to keep building cars if the market doesn't want cars? The other element that they brought up, of course, was they said a shift production that was slated from Mexico to this plant. Uh, and again, uh, this is a for-profit company. Uh, this is this is not a you know one of these situations where they say, sure, we'll do that and we'll we'll just eat the cost. They they look they they're looking to make a profit. They are, and I actually I taught a course a few years ago. So it was a, really a fun course because I used to bring in uh, senior people from Toronto from the uh, capital markets, and uh, it was about the question of uh, country location. So you're a multinational, and you can locate your next plant anywhere, anywhere you want, because you're a multinational. You can put it in Ireland, you can put it in the southern United States, you can put it in China, you can put it in Mexico. And so this question of country location it's it's a little it's a specialty area of research and studies and it's a big consulting business too i don't consult in that area but and and the, there are these people and companies themselves that specialize in studying all the variables why should i go to ontario well what are the wages what are the taxes what is the what is the productivity of the workers uh what is the school system like what's the transit system in other words they crunch a huge number of variables to determine how attractive it is amazon just went through this huge exercise when they were looking at choosing their second head office their second headquarters you know and they were looking to optimize the decision the location well, multinationals do this all the time with plants, and it's not just wages. It's a whole bunch of things. It's what are the local tax rates? What are the corporate income tax rates? What's the productivity? What is the record of strikes? Is there a lot of strikes or are there a low number of strikes? And they, it's just a huge number of variables when they finally make their decision. But at the end of the day, 
if you are not getting those decisions favorably, in other words, companies are not locating in southern Ontario, it's be, and different companies, not, no new Honda plants are going on, no new Toyota plants are going in, no new GM plants are going in. At some point, you have to accept the reality on the wall, the evidence that these different companies are concluding it's not as competitive to go there. And when people say, no, look, we're competitive, we've got free health care, that's not the question. The question you're always is is how competitive are you in relation to another country, another state, another location? So you're always it's A versus B versus C. It's you're not competing against some abstract reality. You're competing literally against Ohio or Texas or Missouri. And and so when you bring it down to that level, they are more competitive than we are. And it's that old joke about, you know, the two guys, and they come across a bear, and they're out hunting, and, and then one guy says, I'm going to run. He says, you can't outrun the bear. He says, no, but I can outrun you, meaning let the bear eat you. Yeah. And, and it's the same, same idea. You know, we, are, we, may be com- we may think we're competitive, and we may think we make good cars, sure, but there's other areas, other locations that can do a better job. And GM recognized that and said, we're closing Oshawa. Just looking at some of the numbers here, we mentioned the neighborhood of about 2,500 people. GM says about half of them are eligible for pensions right. and retirement benefits, which includes about $3,500 a month, a $20,000 car voucher, and a lump sum payment of about $50,000. Now, that's not necessarily enough that you can go buy a palatial estate someplace, no. uh, but it's a start. But the greater question I've got, and I'm sure some people are going to take that package again, but why oh, aren't we, in the minute or so we have left, why don't we have this discussion about, look at, you know, when plants close, whether it's a car plant or whatever else is happening, invariably the union reps are the ones that will say, we're going to keep this open, we're going to fight. Why don't they just say, you know what, we need to turn the page. It's time to retrain to do something else and use your skills because the world is changing, the economy is changing. That's we don't exactly. seem to want to accept that. You're absolutely right, and that's the conversation I think we should be having, and we should be pushing our politicians. Instead of saying, how can we save GM at Oshawa, the question is the wrong question. And this is where I disagree strongly with Mr. Diaz. The question is, what can we do to maximize the, the, the retraining of the workers, focus on the workers, not the company, so we can re- have them reabsorbed into good jobs in the private sector. And I don't buy the argument there's no good jobs out there. Stats can, latest numbers, over a half a million unfilled jobs in Canada at this moment as I speak. And they're, the small business, big business, medium-sized business are desperate. And it's getting worse and worse because all us boomers are retiring. And so there's lots and lots of opportunities out there. And so that's what we should be talking about is, okay, what retraining do we need to aid the transition or facilitate the transition of these workers laid off by GM into good alternative jobs somewhere else in the, in the economy? Ian Lee from the Smart School of Business. Always a pleasure, Ian. Thanks for this today. Thanks very much. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. Some rather disturbing comments on a Facebook page are being investigated in Ottawa these days. Uh, Just a a quite disturbing sampling of this. Trudeau needs to be shot, reads one comment. Another says that whoever does so will be Canada's greatest hero. Another says he needs to eat lead. Just shoot him, reads yet another. These are all on a, a Facebook page with the yellow vests. Now, you may have heard of this organization, of course, and seen them. In uh, some of the displays that have gone on in France over the last couple of days, uh, they seem to be creating a presence here in Canada. Joining us to talk about this is Mercedes Stevenson. Mercedes, of course, Ottawa Bureau Chief with Global News. Uh, Mercedes, thank you so much for the time. Good to have you with us today. 
Thanks for having me on, Bill. This is one of these situations where you we see the the stuff on on the news on Global National and say, well, that's happening over there. Thank God we don't have that. But uh, I, I guess we it's inevitable that we have to understand that. Look, it it could happen here, and it is happening here now. Yeah, it it is it is, and it's uh, very interesting because this morning. Uh, Facebook has actually taken action and they've wiped a large number of these posts. But before that happened, I went on and I screenshotted the responses to the story. Uh, and you see people doubling down and saying, well, it's not illegal to, to wish for someone else to shoot Justin Trudeau. Uh, and you see some members of the group pushing back and saying, you know, he has a family. This is not appropriate. And people responding saying JFK had a family. Didn't stop that. Uh, so it's it's quite interesting to see how it's unfolding. Some of these comments are very disturbing. Um, There was one where an individual talked about how he wished he'd been able to get up on a crane at a job site that Trudeau visited with his rifle. Um, I mean, it's not necessarily that these people are saying they are going to go and kill the Prime Minister. In most cases, they're simply calling for his death. And that ranges from everything from when he was on his ski vacation to people saying they hoped that he would be killed in an avalanche uh, up to the essentially direct calls that, or, or hopes that somebody uh, will shoot, hang, kill the prime minister. There's a lot of photos of things like electric chairs, gun stocks, guillotines. Um, so the content on there certainly drew the attention of the RCMP, who say that they have uh, been made aware of threats, uh, that they take threats against the prime minister very seriously. And, um, you know, there are people in the group that say they know of others who were visited by the RCMP. I saw that this morning before that post was wiped. Someone warning, watch out, the RCMP uh, came to my friend's house. And yet you still see people saying, well, it's not illegal to to wish for his death. And those people, uh, depending on the wording, police officers I've talked to say, be careful, the criminal code uh, might be a little bit more complex than some people realize. But what's fascinating about this is that the posts weren't being taken down by the moderators. And I asked one of the moderators, and he initially said to me he was unaware of any such posts. He'd never seen a death uh, wish for Trudeau in the group. I sent him screenshots we had taken, uh, and he said, well, action will be taken immediately. And as I say, a lot of those comments have been deleted. It's unclear if it's the moderators doing that or Facebook, but Facebook has told us this morning that they are taking action against some of the posts in the group because they have found that they violate their standards. Uh, and it's worth noting, the group's own standards say you're not supposed to be calling for violence and it's supposed to be civil. But obviously, uh, there have been not one or two posts like this. We did the story because it was dozens and dozens of posts that were like this. And, and that's uh, the, obviously the thing I think a lot of people are getting trying to get their heads around here, Mercedes. I mean, they say that we don't allow this sort of thing. We don't encourage this sort of thing. Yet I didn't see anybody until you brought, shone the light on this. I didn't see anybody doing anything about it. Well, that's sort of the thing is, you know, they, they denied that they were even aware this was happening. Well, I don't know how you could be unaware with the number of posts we found just in a couple of days. And I've been watching this group for months uh, and seeing these kinds of posts going up. There's also been a lot of racist posts and misogynistic posts. There have been uh, anti-Semitic posts. So there's a lot of posts that have gone up that, that would pretty clearly violate Facebook standards uh, based on what they're saying, that would violate what the book, what the group says their, their own standards are. Um, now, I don't know how many of those were taken down that we never saw. Um, the moderators say that this is not what the group is about. And there's certainly people, by the way, in the group who are very frustrated by this because they want to protest the carbon tax or economic policies or immigration policies, and you can see them getting frustrated with this. But these posts that were of a nature that were calling for the Prime Minister's death had multiple likes, people responding to them. Um, And it was very infrequent that somebody would intervene and actually say, you know what, this is not appropriate. This is not what the group is about.
Well, and I guess by definition, we have to understand exactly who these people are. The the yellow vest, as I mentioned at the beginning of our conversation, uh, probably first came to light when we saw some of the protests that were happening in France. And and you're right, it it seemed to be based at least on on concern about carbon taxing, et cetera, that uh, President Macron was trying to uh, get going in in France at the time. So uh, given the fact that the uh, the government's process uh, with uh, carbon taxing has now gone into place here in 2019, I can understand why there would be a presence. We had a a slight uh, thing just the other day at Hamilton. City Hall with just a handful of people at that time, but it seems to be a little more organized than we had anticipated. Well, it's it's very large on Facebook anyhow. I mean, I'm looking at the group right now, and it's over 100,000 people. Um, now, how many people actually show up at protests is something else. It's been largely a group in Western Canada, and it started out with frustration with the government. A lot of people saying this is about the carbon tax, it's about Justin Trudeau's policies, um, and then it sort of started trying to connect itself to those truck convoys that were happening. And that's been very controversial within the truck convoys. Some wanted to get involved with the yellow vest because they thought they had a lot of fundraising capabilities and similar frustrations. Others were very uncomfortable with it and said, this is not what it's about. We're supposed to be talking about oil. We're not talking about anything else. Don't sort of draw attention to issues that are not our issue. But, um, you know, we'll get a a sense today, too, of, of how this is turning out after this story and some of the other things that have been out there, because I can tell you on their Facebook group, they're saying that they're going to show up and protest the Prime Minister in Kamloops, and they were posting last night that they were going to try to block his path with semi-trucks. Um, so we'll see how much of this manifests. There's a lot of people, obviously, who are passively involved in the group and may not even be checking it when you're talking about 100,000 people. Uh, but that's still a pretty powerful presence on social media and it's something that parties have to think about going into this election campaign the nature of campaigning has changed the nature of social media has changed and what might have once been a lone wolf in their basement writing an angry letter now has the ability to get that seen by hundreds of thousands of people in a few instances. Uh, the obvious question that authorities are going to be asking, I suppose, and I know you've talked to them about this, Mercedes, is uh, how do you weed out those that might be serious about this from, as you say, the, the guys sitting there with the, you know, the foil hats on down in their basements? Well, that's the difficult thing, and the two security experts I spoke to, one who's an expert in protective policing and one who is a former CSIS uh, counterterrorism analyst, both said the issue is when people start to see repeated comments, they might think that it's actually normal, that that's what people think, Uh, and there's a concern that that could set someone off. There's a concern that you can generate violence, that you can incite violence, Uh, by calling for it repeatedly, that somebody might think, well, everyone's saying someone else should do it, perhaps that's me, and you get someone who is vulnerable or unstable who acts. Um, I've been told that certainly the RCMP and CSIS are watching this, uh, that if they believe somebody is a threat or they are concerned about what they see, they will monitor that person, and often what they'll do is actually go to the house. Uh, And that can change behavior very quickly because it's one thing to be posting this stuff online when the RCMP show up at somebody's door and say, are you aware um, that what you're saying actually constitutes a threat? And some people aren't aware. They think you have to say, I'm going to kill someone for it to be a threat. It doesn't have to be that direct under the criminal code. Uh, And there's people who've actually been charged as a result of this with, you know, both Stephen Harper and Justin Trudeau, where they said things that they thought were completely legal and it turned out it wasn't. On the other side, people are saying, well, this is being used to repress freedom of speech. I can't criticize them. I can't say what I feel uh, because the government's trying to shut it down. So in some cases, it sort of generates an even stronger response. But certainly, if there are people who the RCMP believe are a threat, I know that they have lists. 
Uh, and I know that on those lists, by the way, uh, the Prime Minister's protective detail and the emergency response teams from the RCMP that provide protection have those names and photos. And if they see someone at that event, they will intervene before they get anywhere close to the Prime Minister. I mean, as you've mentioned, Mercedes, I mean, hatred against certain elected officials is not a new phenomenon. It's been going on. His father was a, a, a target for many people, of course, they, you know, the Western energy programs that were going on back in those days, etc. We, we understand that. But it just seems as if social media has given a platform to an awful lot of people. And, and actually, I think, obviously, we've seen a significant increase uh, because of that. Uh, well, and it's it's also, you know, part of the Donald Trump phenomenon, which is ironic because he's the opposite end of the political spectrum. But you've seen a lot of death threats against Trump and people saying things about the president um, that I don't think you would have seen publicly before. And, and that, unfortunately, creates an environment where that becomes more acceptable. And it, it's now, uh, you know, it, it's not as if there's only right-wing threats, there's left-wing threats. It, it runs the whole spectrum. Uh, but there's been this kind of normalization of saying very extreme things against people, and that has translated into people calling for the death of political figures. And you kind of look at it and think, I, I don't remember ever seeing this before, but part of why you haven't seen it before is there just wasn't the ability to do it, as you say. There wasn't the platform. People might talk about it with their friends or, or over dinner or write angry letters, but there was no ability to broadcast your thoughts widely. And that is a great thing about the Internet is that it is democratizing. But the other part of that is that you have to realize there's this kind of information, too, that can be spread very quickly. Obviously, you see platforms like Facebook trying to deal with it, but this stuff had been up for months, and nothing was done about it until we ran the story. This reminded me, as I was watching the reporting on this, of an old, it's a classic Martin Scorsese movie from the 60s with Robert De Niro called Taxi Driver. Uh, and, and it was about the same idea, about death threats that were coming out. And, and De Niro plays a guy who's a, a little simple-minded, who basically took this stuff to heart. And, and started to, 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 to rationalize what was going on. And I, I guess the concern that CSIS, and I, I would imagine the RCMP are going to have at this stage, is are, are there people out there that, are, as you mentioned, are going to read this and, and figure this is normalization of this. Uh, maybe I'll be that guy. Maybe I will be Canada's next hero. Well, and that's, that's certainly the analysts we've spoken to have told us that would be the concern. I mean, there's always people who might be a concern, and they're aware of them, and they try to track them and watch them. But uh, the concern is that this is a whole different level of, what they're concerned someone vulnerable might see as egging on. And therefore, it might be just in their head before that they think about it, but now if they read, you know, 24 posts in two hours that are going up saying someone should shoot the Prime Minister, does that potentially trigger someone? And, and the RCMP are very aware of that and uh, certainly very careful. They don't ever talk about operational security or how they're dealing with this, but the experts we spoke to said that that, that is a concern, that it starts to build not just with one individual, too, but that it becomes sort of an attitude or a wave that can build. And that's also, to be fair, very frustrating for people who are in the group for legitimate concerns, legitimate grievances, who are frustrated by the carbon tax, who are frustrated by political issues that they want to talk about. And you see them trying to express that to other people in the group, especially after the story, saying, you know, stop with this kind of behavior. This is not what we're here to do. We're here to protest legally and to, to bring up issues. But you kind of see those threads just getting hijacked over and over again uh, by what is a small number of people, but they're clearly having influence and the posts aren't being taken down. Uh, what Facebook does next is the question. With some people, they're complaining they've been locked out of their Facebook accounts and it took them time to get back in. You know, will they be banned? Even that's tough, though, because you can just open a new account under another name 24 hours later. Yeah. 
you mentioned obviously they're investigating this, those being the authorities, of course. Uh, the Prime Minister, as, as you talked about in the reporting, is, is across the West Coast. He's in British Columbia for the next few days, I guess, skiing. But also there's some work to be done there, and I know he's going to have some meetings. Did you get any indication at all, Mercedes, that they've increased security around the Prime Minister because of this? Um, well, they'll, they'll never say. Um, it's even... Even people who you know who work that detail are very, very careful. They don't ever reveal anything that could uh, allow someone to be aware of their capabilities. But he is at all times surrounded by a protective unit. It's like the Secret Service. That's all they do is protect him. Uh, they're, they're very used to dealing with threats. Um, they certainly have intelligence capabilities. I'm sure that given this group, uh, they're going to be on the lookout. They're going to be aware whether or not that means they actually need extra officers or are taking extra steps. But typically what, what my sources who've worked on this team tell me will happen uh, is if they think there are individuals who are a threat and the prime minister is going to be in that area, they know where that individual is. And often the RCMP will go to their door and say, we don't expect you to be showing up at the rally today. Uh, and with most people, that is enough to stop it. And keep in mind, a lot of these people are making these comments. Uh, we have no evidence that they would ever do anything. It can just be an expression of frustration. But the issue is that it certainly, if you're the RCMP, you can't write it off that easily. They do have to take it seriously in case it is serious in some of those cases. Well, and we've seen a, a much broader reaction to this, obviously, with the you know the, the murder of Nathan Cirillo, of course, a couple of years ago at the Cenotaph from downtown Ottawa. And we saw increased security measures that were put in place, uh, balustrades, et cetera, of course, around the Parliament Hill buildings. Uh, are, are they any consideration about that sort of thing, or is this really just a social media thing and they're trying to contain this as opposed to, I, I guess, uh, manifesting this by actually putting you know, more security in, et cetera, et cetera, which we've seen in the past sometimes. They, they want to put a show that, 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 that look at, there are defenses up here and we're not going to allow that sort of behavior. I, nothing we've seen in Ottawa, but you wouldn't see it here. Um, usually those kinds of defenses are major public events and, yeah. and they're trying to signal this is not a soft target. Uh, when it comes to the prime minister, we'll see later today, he's in Kamloops. This group has said they're going to protest them. Uh, we'll have cameras there. So we're certainly going to take a look and see uh, if there's a visible increase in security. But keep in mind, when they increase security around the prime minister, most of what happens, you don't see. It's teams that are hidden around corners. They're in basements. They're in garages. They're ready to come out if anything happens. I'm sure that certainly the men and women who protect him are aware of this story. Uh, their eyes are always peeled, uh, but they, they are very aware and briefed on possible threats. So we'll take a look and see if that's increased. But even if they were more aware or were upping the profile, uh, you wouldn't necessarily see that expressed. But we're going to check it out. It's a different angle to this, too, when you, you look at the group itself, those those being the yellow vests, and, and the, not just their Facebook page, but as you mentioned, the organization itself. We live in a democracy, and of course, the, the right to protest, and, and, and they certainly are, are exercising that. And it must be certainly frustrating for some of them that, as you mentioned, are, are legitimately concerned about things like carbon tax and government policy, uh, to think that maybe some radicals are actually using their organization as a platform for this. Yeah, you and you see that frustration, and, and there's also, some of them are convinced not really anyone in their group. Uh, they were convinced that the people who we'd quoted were Antifa or left-wingers who had infiltrated their group and were trying to make them look bad. Um, I checked a number of the profiles, certain the ones we used, to make sure that these profiles had not been established within the last month. 
uh, or didn't have things that would suggest this is a real person, like family pictures. Uh, Facebook profiles tend to be when you can see them, because some people have their settings differently, but when you can see them, you can usually tell if this is a new profile or an old profile. If I can see a picture of this person with their family in 2012, and they've consistently been posting things that are consistent with what they're posting on the public page, that is very unlikely to be a troll page that's been set up to troll this group that just came about. Um, if it was an account that had just been set up and there was no content, no evidence of who this person was, there's one picture or the picture is not of a real person, those are red flags that it may not be a real account. Um, so you know, when I looked at them, most of these people, we were able to establish, yeah, this is a real person with a real account. Uh, it is not a Russian troll. It is not Antifa who've just set this up for this purpose, or if they have, uh, they're a genius who set this up like five, seven years ago with the anticipation of doing this today. So you do have to be careful about what comments you're looking at and who's behind them and whether or not they're legitimately coming from a real person, because we have had a problem with Russian trolls in Canada. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, you know, from, from the profiles we were looking at, these were real people. Uh, interesting reporting. Great reporting on this one. Of course, we'll watch for the update uh, later on on Global National later on tonight, Mercedes. Thank you so much for this. I really appreciate it. Thanks for having me. Take care. Mercedes Stevenson, of course, Bureau Chief, Ottawa Bureau Chief with Global News. And uh, you can check out Global National at 630 tonight uh, with Donna Friesen, and there'll be an update on obviously how the RCMP and CSIS are handling this, uh, well, proposed threat anyway uh, on social media. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML. The Bill Kelly Podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts from. You can also listen to The Bill Kelly Show weekdays from 9 till noon on 900 CHML. I'm Bill Kelly. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free, so you never miss an episode. And make sure that you rate and review.